individually and also as a church family. That it would, in one hand, it would comfort us to know that there is still a king on the throne in the midst of chaos of life. But secondly, that would also compel us to aim to fulfill the mission of the great king that he has given to his people, to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God to the ends of the nations. That we would not be ashamed, but that mission would ultimately consume every part of our life. The great king has the authority to give a command to his adherents and citizens, and that's exactly who we are in this world that is broken and yearning out and experiencing every week and every month and every day and every year the consequences of living under a rule that is not of the great and perfect king. So as you have your Bibles, open with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we discover first and foremost that we have the perfect king who has redeemed an enduring kingdom for himself. We have an enduring perfect king who has redeemed an enduring kingdom for himself. I want to give you three reasons for this. And the first we're going to notice from verse 1 is that the perfected host of Hebrew faith runners have gone before us. The perfected host of Hebrew faith runners have gone before us. Hebrews 1 from the ESV. Again, if you have a Bible, please do follow along. If you don't, please take a pew back Bible in front of you as a gift to you this morning from us. Verse 1, the author writes and he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, as you, you possibly know, is called the Hall of Faith, like the Hall of Fame. When I was a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'm imagining like jerseys hung up, all kinds of things. The Hebrew Hall of Faith, that these individuals who followed after Christ. And what's interesting is if you read that list, you're thinking, I can think of a lot of faults in all of those people that are listed. And yet the picture of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is this is this honest snapshot of realizing that the faith that they demonstrated is a sign of enduring times and seasons of difficulty. Not because they were great, but because they ultimately, though not perfect themselves, trusted in Yahweh, trusted in the nature and the character and the promises of God. And their faith endured, each of them, a host of different struggles and hardships that they faced in their own era of life. And so Hebrews chapter 11 for us is, is, is written in this indicative mood, so as to say this is what happened. Hebrews chapter 11 is saying this is the hall of faith. This is how the, the Hebrew people of God followed after Yahweh. This is how they endured. Hebrews chapter 12, our text this morning, is the run by faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 12 is written in the imperative mood. It's written in this sense that says you're a follower of Yahweh. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, so run by faith. Be marked by faith and the nature and the goodness and the character of God. What the author does very clearly for us in this text from the very beginning, I want to make sure you catch this in, in chapter 12, verse 1. As he takes these two sections, chapter 11 and chapter 12, and he says, you are followers of Yahweh. And you are to be marked by an enduring faith. 
that has its own set of trials and difficulties for you to endure. So endure them joyfully. Because you're not the first to run after them. There was a host of Hebrew witnesses that went before you. There's something comforting about not being the first to do something. Isn't that the case? There's something about looking around and seeing that there's other people that makes you feel better. You know what I'm talking about? You can feel that experience of automatically, what do we naturally do in life? You kind of look around to see what other people are doing. And Hebrews chapter 11 is this evidence to these Hebrew followers of Christ that, hey, people have already gone before you and followed after him. They've endured a host of trials and difficulties. And so now you do the same. When I was younger, by younger I mean like a few weeks ago, I I looked at this text and I would always think of a great cloud of witnesses. I always imagined it like they were people that were wearing like our jerseys and they were lining the race, cheering us on like a track race. You know, good job, keep going, you're doing awesome. But that's not how the text is used for us. The text is used to say, you're not alone and you're following after the Lord. And you're not the first. So keep running the race that the Lord has set for you. And cast aside everything that's going to try to trip you up in your life. Because the race that's been set for you isn't yours to set. Is it? We'll say that again. The race that's set out for you, every one of us individually and as families and as a church family, it's not our race to set. We don't get to set the parameters of the race. The Lord does, the great king. He sets the parameters. We're called to faithfully run. Doing what? Fixing our eyes upon Christ. Our world is filled with finish lines, isn't it? Our world is so filled with finish lines. From the time you're the youngest, there's the idea of, well, well, my kid starts school at this age, and that's a finish line. And so for those parents maybe that were excited about their kids leaving, there's great rejoicing. For some of us who were just praying that that finish line will be our kids sleeping through the night, that day is coming, come Lord Jesus, if not. (laughs) There's a host of finish lines, and then that kid gets older, and we celebrate what finish line? Graduation. And the person that's working in life celebrates what? Retirement. There's a constant set of finish lines that can draw our attention and our purpose in life. But our purpose in life, believer, that the king has set before us, that the host of faithful witnesses, this word martyr we get it from, this host of faithful witnesses that have gone before us, the race that they run is a race marked by enduring faith. The gift of God rooted in the nature and faithfulness of God. The picture is whatever stumbling block comes your way and my way, our call is the same, to endure with our eyes fixed upon our King, knowing that we're not the first, but we are called to keep the King first in our purview of all of life, forward and backwards. He is good and He is our faithful King. Romans 15.4 says it this way, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, Christian, take hope, because you have a great king. The perfected host of Hebrew faith runners have gone before us. And secondly, as we move on to verses 2 through 4, the perfected Hebrew king 
has completed the ultimate race for us. The perfect Hebrew king has completed the ultimate race for us. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you, believer, may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood." Revelation 1.5 calls Jesus the faithful witness. The faithful witness. You have a faithful witness, believer, who has gone before you. You have a faithful witness who has gone, and, and, and what does it say? What does it say? What did he do for the joy that was set before him? The joy that was set before him. He came and took on flesh and did what? He endured the cross. The king came. The word joy, in my mind, I don't imagine a cross. I'm like, how was your day? And you said, I just had a joy-filled day. Like, I'm going to imagine that does not include being hung on a cross, right? <laughs> that would not fit in the category of a joy-filled day, at least in Missouri. I don't know if that's different in Texas. Maybe I'm culturally not accurate down here. What happens yet? I'm learning. Give me patience. But for the joy that was set before him, joy in the word of God consistently has to do with this idea that joy equals obedience to God despite consequences. Let me say that again. Joy equals obedience to God despite the consequences. That's joy. It's deeper than our circumstances, and it's what Jesus prayed for his own disciples, for us ultimately. In John 17, 13, he said, that you may have his joy fulfilled in you. And in, well, before that, John 15, 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and complete. The Christian is unlike anything in this world because our joy is not rooted upon the circumstances of this life. When we breathe our final breath, every one of us, that is not the end. If you get wronged in this life, there is a perfect judge that will make all things right, who will judge impartially and perfectly. So you can take some comfort, not just some comfort, but all comfort, because the God of all peace will make all things right. But oh, those that do not know the great king, I cannot imagine the hopelessness they have to base their life upon the circumstances of their own life. Their joy is as fickle as the meal that they ate before. But our great king gives us a joy that is deeper than all circumstances of life because he has set the race for us to run. What did our king do for the joy before him? He endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame that Christ our king experienced for us, the humiliation that Jesus experienced and endured for us for, because of our sin is greater than anything we could imagine, the shame I understand my predecessor back in the O's, Justin Beatles. I love him. You know where I'm going, don't you? That's right. I, I was privileged to meet him in April. After you called me to be your pastor, I was able to fly down to Dallas with our, our staff, our wonderful staff. And to be I met Justin. And I was told a story on the way there of, hey, when you meet Justin, i got to show you a video first, he said. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it was like a sermon or something he preached? Like, what happened? 
And, and Justin is his gift to the world. I got his permission before talking about this to you. But his gift to the world was this thing called Speedo Dad. Please, for, 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 for love's sake, do not look it up during the sermon, okay? Wait till you get home, Google it, give him some more views or something there. But the, but the picture of shame is he went and he picked up his son from school is the picture in like a full Speedo outfit with everything, the, the whole cap and everything to shame his son, right, to embarrass his son. The shame that our Lord endured for us is not like that. The shame that our Lord en endured for us is a picture that we can't relate to in the same way. And we, we speak of a cross. We put crosses in our yard. We wear crosses. People get cross tattoos. But the cross in the first century world was the word that should not be spoken of. It was a word of offense, as offensive as any word that's ever been used. It was shocking. Matter of fact, in many ancient writings, they wouldn't use that word. It was too offensive. It was appalling and disgusting and barbaric, grotesque as a word could possibly be. That the eternal God, the Father, would be pleased to send the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to come, not simply to take on flesh, fully God, fully man, that he would come and he would bear the death of the grotesqueness of the cross, that he would be spit upon, mocked, beaten, and crucified. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's our perfect king. Praise God. Praise God. Thirdly, the proper perspective of our king's discipline will produce enduring fruit. This is what we have. We have the perfect king who has redeemed an enduring kingdom for himself and see there the proper perspective of our king's discipline will produce enduring fruit. Verses 5 through 11. It reads like this. And have you, Hebrew believers, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. And God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more? Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Because of the work of our perfect king, we are heirs of Christ. We are heirs in Christ. Romans 8.17 says it like this, And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The promises of God and the right to stand with God in the judgment, the right to be with the Lord, is not something you have to fill a job application out for. It's not something you train for. It's not something you hope you win the lottery in. You can't bribe anyone for this. It was earned by Christ, and it's yours in Christ. 
You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And as one who is in Christ, if you but trusted Christ, you've been made an heir in Christ. And what does every good father, what does every good king want for his kingdom? It's that they would be in his image. And that's what our good king desires for us. Discipline of the Lord is good. It doesn't say pleasurable at the time, but good. A drill instructor that does not discipline his soldiers, does not love his soldiers, he sends them off to their demise. When I was in student ministry, I never had once, I never had once, a student who ultimately did not desire discipline. Let me explain. We always had students that came in, into the youth ministry and into the church, that had no parenting at all. They had complete freedom. No checks and balances. They came and went to school, to church, to anywhere without any, anything. No discipline. They were their own parents. And there were some students that looked at them and longed for that and said, wow, I wish I had that. But every one of those students, you know this? Every one of those students longed for discipline. I'll share one story of many I could share with you. After youth camp one time, I took some of the boys out to Dairy Queen afterwards, and I asked one of them, I said, what did you like best about camp? You're talking about a place with no air conditioning, right, in the middle of the summer. And I'm thinking he's going to tell me, oh, I just love the games. And what he said was, I loved everything about camp. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I loved having a bedtime. I loved having a cabin parent that would come in and check on us. And if we were being bad, he'd yell at us. I loved having lunch at a certain time every day. I loved having to wake up at a certain time. I loved everything about it. And my heart was crushed because what he said was, oh, I long for discipline of a parent that loves me. That's your king. That's your king. We don't choose the discipline. For some of us, you have had a hard year. But the king is good. And he shapes his citizens into his image by discipline, because he loves you. He loves you. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as the father, the son in whom he delights. Christian, we have the perfect king who has redeemed an enduring kingdom for himself. And secondly, those who do not have the perfect king have a fading kingdom of foolishness. We contrast the eternal kingdom of our Lord with his eternal reign with the foolish, fleeting kingdom of this world. Two components to this truth. The first in 12 through 14, we see what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? First, we ought to strengthen ourselves, strengthen yourself and cling to the perfect holy king. Knowing that there's a fading kingdom of foolishness, oh, that desires to entice us in. So what do we do first? Strengthen yourself and cling to your perfectly holy king. Look at 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, believer. 
and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 35, verse 5. With expert precision, the author quotes from the book of the Israelites living in Exodus, longing for their home. So to believer, Hebrew believer or Gentile believer, we long to be with our king. This is not our home. Yet we're to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, while we're here, faithfully making disciples. These believers are battered and they're tired. Look what it says. It says, drooping hands and weak knees. They are exhausted. And what's he say? Move forward. Move forward. Move forward to Christ as you look to him. Functionally, verse 14, what do we do? Do we take ground with the sword? Do we take ground with insults? No. Do we take the path of the Hebrew zealot who went to overthrow Rome by force? No. What's he say? We're to be peacemakers. We're to live at peace with everyone, strive for peace with everyone. It sounds like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? The Prince of Peace that Stephen read for us a few moments ago. The Prince of Peace. It sounds like the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. That's ours in Christ. We have a kingdom not of flesh and blood on this earth. We have a kingdom that our king has already accomplished. And it's coming into place. Our king is coming back again. He will come for us. He will come for us. The end of Hebrews chapter 9, the king will come again for those that long for his return. We look for his second coming. See, the first advent, we celebrate advent, but here's what it does for us. It forces us to look forward at the second coming of our king. And that's a good thing. Our great king ultimately calls us in this way to strive for holiness in all that we do. Look to Christ, strive to Christ, cling close to Christ in the discomforts of this life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 says it like this. You can write down that reference. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We talked about that last week. That you may abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body, and listen to this, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, who do not know God. Our king cares how we live, and he cares what mission we commit our life to. It's his kingdom. He's the king. And he cares what we do with our bodies, and he cares what we do with our eyes, and he cares what we do with our lips, and he cares what we do with our habits. It's his kingdom. We're citizens in his kingdom. We're not petitioning him to join our kingdom. But how often do we get that backwards? I know I do far too often. He's the great king. He sets the course. He sets the purpose. And that should give you comfort if you know yourself and you know me. Our great king has a desire for holiness for his bride. What a beautiful image that the Lord would call the church the bride of Christ. It's not that she tries to clean herself up to earn a white wedding dress. 
but she is clothed in a white wedding dress because her good king, her groom, makes her pure. Praise God, church. Praise God. So we want to strengthen ourselves, and, and, and secondly there in 15 through 17, we also strengthen each other by calling one another to repent from foolishness. This kingdom of this world is fading. And so what do we do? We lovingly don't just look at ourselves, we look at one another in love. Those that have confessed faith in Christ, and we call each other lovingly, but nevertheless, we call each other to live repentant lives out of the foolishness of this world. Verse 15 through 17, look what he says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So look around. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness, that's interesting, we're going to look at that in a second, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, what did he do? He sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We can be strengthened because we're not alone. And we're to be strengthening each other because you and I are indebted one to another as fellow professing believers in Jesus Christ to call each other to repentance for our entire lives until the Lord comes again or we go to meet him. See to it that no one fails. You and I are responsible to one another to call each other from foolishness. What's foolishness? It's Esau. He gives the example. Foolishness is Esau selling away his birthright because he was really hungry. Remember, Esau was like a hunter. He was probably just massive Incredible, strong-looking guy. Incredible hunter. And he had one of those things like a, maybe a, a young teenager does. It comes in and says, I am starving to death. Right? You look at it, you're like, are you really? You're like a 275-pound teenager of pure muscle. I think you're going to be okay. And Esau, he, ah, he's starving to death. Ah, birthright, whatever. What good's my birthright if I starve to death? He sells it. He does something completely foolish. That's what the author says of the church, of the body of Christ, of the believers who don't hold each other accountable to foolish decisions. It would be like being in the room and just letting Esau make that decision. If you loved Esau and you were in the room, what would you say? Let's think about that for a second, big guy. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Because this is foolish. This is completely foolish. I love you, Esau. You're a great hunter. Don't kill me, but that's really foolish. Don't do that. Just as Israel is to do that, we're to do that for each other as the church. We're to do that for each other as the church. And what does he quote? Look what he says. This is really neat. You can write down the reference. Deuteronomy 29.18. Write down the reference. Deuteronomy 29.18. Just like mold spreads in a house... Sin spreads in a church. And he caused this thing that, that, that ultimately it takes a root of bitterness. And in that text, you take time to read the whole chapter sometime. Moses is called to call the Israelites to not live like the Canaanites. 
Because if they do, their behavior will spread like a root of bitterness that will just contagiously, like that elephant ears plant we have down here, it'll just keep spreading all around and not stop. So when you see sin in your brother or sister's life, lovingly come and do something about it. Because the foolishness will impact everyone. Individual isolationism is foreign to the Hebrew Scriptures. You don't have individual Hebrew believers just doing their own thing. They are indebted to the community. They were, they're bought into a, a body, a nation. As a church, isolationism, I believe, and individualism has done an incredible amount of damage on the American evangelical church. Absolutely is poisoning it. Let me give you a simple saying. Commitment demands accountability. Commitment demands accountability. If you don't believe me, don't show up at work for the next week. <laughs> Commitment demands accountability. But what happens strangely and sadly in many churches all across our country, right? And all of us, and I get it because I feel it sometimes, is this desire to say, you know what, I like that, and we, and we kind of act like we're American Idol judges. And we say, you know, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But a consumer mindset does not have commitment to it. We're consumers or we're committed. And if we're committed, commitment comes with accountability. And, and biblically, we were not to treat the church as an application like we would Kroger or Walmart. Let me explain that to you. If Kroger or Walmart showed up at your door and said, listen, we got a problem. We care about you and you haven't shopped here for about six weeks. We're concerned. You would be offended and really weirded out by that. right? You'd be like, okay, we've crossed some norms here. But that's kind of what it is to a local church that you're not committed to, isn't it? This speaks to myself too. This gets me too. And you know it. Here's how you know it. Here's how you know how committed you are. Here's what I mean. Right? We're committed to the Word, right? Ultimately, right? church drifts from the Word. Hey, that's a different story. Different, drifts from the Gospel. That's a problem. But here's how you know it. You know it when somebody lovingly comes and begins to speak accountability into your life. And you respond like you would Kroger talking to you and not the body of Christ purchased by the king. You and I need to examine our hearts and lives every single week and every single month because there is a part of the flesh that says, how dare you rule over me? How dare you hold me accountable? Do you know who I am? What the baby in the manger says, I know who you are. And I'm the great king. Come and know me. As we approach the final days of 2018, I'd imagine that none of us imagined that this year would unfold in the exact way it has. Some of you have endured unbelievable hardship, disappointment, hurts and pains, frayed relationships. And yet here we are as a body. We gather together to fix our eyes back upon Christ. We fix our eyes upon the perfect king who came for us, who calls us as the body to help each other up, to love each other, to comfort each other, to encourage each other, to edify each other, to pour our lives out together to be making disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God to the ends of the earth because he is worthy and he is our great king. Thank you, Lord, that you don't call us 
to do this alone. We gather together, trusting, singing, worshiping, listening, reading, studying, submitting, giving, caring, and going for the great purposes of our King in every one of our lives to the day he calls us home. That's our king. He is good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Next steps. Two questions. Two personal questions. We'll find out if you treat me like Kroger or not. Personal questions. I'm not asking you to answer them to me. But our song of response is always a good time for you to examine your heart before the Lord and get your heart right before the Lord if you've got maybe some roots of bitterness in. Here's the question, first question. Has an area of discipline in my life produced the fruit of bitterness rather than holiness that I know I need to confess to the perfect king? Has an area of discipline in my life pr produced in me a root of bitterness, a fruit of bitterness? rather than a, a fruit of holiness. You know your life. You know your heart. You know your spouse. You know your kids. And your kids know you. How would they respond if they were to ask this question, ask this question about you? They're in our song of response. Make it a confession before the Lord, the one who is our living hope. A second question might be more involved than that for you. Is there someone in my life, this is more personal, I would ask, relational, I should say. Is there someone in my life that has drifted from the fellowship of the local church that I need to ask God for the courage to personally pursue? Did a face come into your mind? Ask the Lord for courage to pursue them. I praise God that he is in the business of pursuing prodigals. And if you're here this morning as a prodigal, if you've drifted from the fellowship of the body of Christ, thank you for being here. Stop running. Turn to your king and rejoice. Welcome home. Thank you, Lord. You are good. Your kingdom endures. You truly are our living hope. That's our king. Would you stand with me as we sing to that good king right now?